Each one of us need to look in the mirror and go, how can I be a little bit better? What can I do a little bit better? I don't have to be great. I don't have to be perfect. There is no best. How can I be a little bit better? How can I be a little more fair? How can I understand that my brother and sister are also hurting, maybe in more and different ways than I am? How can I have a conversation without a condemnation? How can I have more patience to take a breath and listen and let someone who hasn't been heard speak more loudly than maybe they need to, but, but hear them? How do we make this time not just a flash in the pan? Uh, how, do, how do we be honest where the choices we make for ourselves selfishly are also the best choices for the most amount of people? And then, and then there's not any specific recipe for that, but take that into consideration when we make our choices for ourselves. I'd say this, man, start off with trying to create more green lights for yourself and others and see where those two meet and see that actually being selfless is actually a very selfish act. Creating more for others is actually very selfish for yourself as well. And try to make sure your selfish choices for yourself also light the way for more people as well. That's Matthew McConaughey, and this is part three of our very special Best of 2020 edition of the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Happy New Year's Eve, everybody, or New Year's Day, whenever you find yourself tuning into this. Hope you're not too hungover, that you didn't, uh, you know, hit it too hard. That is one of the amazing things about sobriety, waking up fresh and clear on New Year's Day. Look, I've got plenty of (laughs) dark January 1st under the belt, but now I count 23, yeah, 23 consecutive New Year's days without a hangover, which I gotta say feels pretty awesome. But if you did push the envelope a little bit, maybe you hit it a little bit too hard, maybe you indulged in a little pandemic insanity and uh, now you're rethinking your relationship to alcohol or drugs. Well, I feel you, I've been there. It's a longer conversation that we can have, but right now, I guess I'll say this, you don't have to use or drink again if you don't want to, ever. If I could do it, I know for a fact that you can too. So all I can say in this format is raise your hand, reach out for help, find somebody that you can talk to. As you might suspect, I get a crazy amount of messages, way too many to read, but my DMs on Twitter and on Instagram are always open. And I really do do my best to get back to anyone and everyone who reaches out to me, who contacts me concerning a struggle with the booze and the substances. I really do wanna help, so feel free to contact me. But again, the main thing is raising your hand, not being afraid to reach out for help and ultimately to accept help. Okay, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply 
Just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. 
I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, welcome. Welcome to the third and final installation of my annual podcast yearbook, which is kind of you know what this thing is. So let's get back into it with a personal hero of mine, the singular, the eminent Aaron Brockovich, who joined me for a deep dive on the pollution and politicization of our most needed resource, water. The universe conspired to produce episode 547. I will thus oblige said universe with this deep cut, a powerful reminder of the indelible influence of the individual to create positive change and awaken a movement. So when you're first working with Masri and you're carrying around this doggedness, this stick to <laughs> but your life up to that point had been a lot of, you know, banging your head against the wall and not really making your way in the manner in which maybe you envisioned for yourself. When you get that file and you see that paperwork about medical records stuck in this essentially a real estate deal. Huh? Do you have a conscious sense of like, there's an opportunity here for me? Like what what was your awareness level? Like that stuck out, but you were a file clerk. It wasn't your job to go investigate at that point, but there was something that clicked in you that said, I need to know more. Like here, I'm gonna go on a, a journey with this. Curiosity. I was smart enough to read the medical reports and because they were done in a bar graft. So it didn't take a rocket scientist uh-huh. to figure out what the hell, a lot T cells, what are those? I looked it up. So white counts, what does that mean? Looked it up. All of this stuff was off the chart and mom kicked in and curiosity kicked in. And I'm like, what if that was my child? I'd be worried. And that's what kicked me off mm. was just my own, oh my gosh, this is weird. I'm curious, why would this be happening? What's wrong with the children? What would I do if I saw blood work like this on my kid? That's where I went. Yeah. In the movie, the, that woman is played by Mark Helgenberger, right? Yeah. Like she, But she, is she a stand-in for a variety of people or based on a real person? Because in the book- Roberta. In the book, she was more up to speed and more suspicious and knew more. Like it, it, it plays in the movie like she's less- suspecting of what's happening. Well, if you remember in the movie, when Julia first meets her, it's Roberta Walker. And she she knew enough because she was already asking questions. That's uh-huh. why I was there. And right. and you see her connect the dots in the conversation. And 
She goes, my God, the water, the kids, the pool. Roberta was right. already there. Well, she looks out and her kids are swimming right. in the pool at the and, time. And that's how I got involved, beginning with Roberta's persistence. And like I told mm-hmm. you, in every community, there's a Roberta Walker. Yeah. There's an Aaron Brockovich. Oh, they're there. Yeah. And then when they join forces, we started really getting some stuff done. I still talk to Roberta all the time. I was just on text with her the other day. She's amazing. And she's one of those moms and she was done with the bullshit and she'd been pushed through enough. And, you know, we talk about in the book when people come to me, like even Roberta, when she first came to the law firm, in a way they're looking for permission, if you will, to act. And what they really need is support. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up and I'm like, oh, hell yeah, no, I wouldn't deal with this. If this was my kids, I mean, it starts there. The support starts there. And this is something that was really well thought out to keep covered up. Yeah. And so the community, they didn't know who to listen to. And then once we got together, it's amazing what happens because nobody ever wants to be the first to say it. And we don't wake up every day and ask our neighbor, did little Johnny get diagnosed with colitis? And have you been having chronic nosebleeds and weight loss? We don't do that. Mm-hmm. And once we started getting Roberta come to the firm, I go out there, Roberta and I together, and then calling another mom and another mom, very quickly we became a bigger group. And I talk about that in the book, Logic common sense, leverage. People think leverage is a bad thing. No, it's not. That's getting to know your neighbor. The minute we started leveraging ourselves with the community, PG&E ignored us with one and five and 10. But when we came 50, 200, 500, 600, they're like going, uh, what's going on right here? And that creates an environment where a whistleblower might feel more inclined to disclose what he or she knows. I mean, in the movie, the Fisher Stevens character, like short of getting, you know, his documents, it would have been a different story, right? So you need, you need the groundswell, but you also need those people on the inside who might be willing to share with you something that you're not going to be able to find otherwise. Well, you do. And you're absolutely right. And Roberta Walker had already been to the water board and she had made a note on one of her notes. And I'm like, what's this CR6? And she said, oh, there was chromium six. So she was already on it. So when I went into the waterboard, that's when I started seeing the documents, uh-huh. like the one I just right. shared with you. So oftentimes documents are there uh, on the intake. Somebody may or may not know what they are and files them and they're never discovered again. Or somebody clearly will make a reference, put this over here, don't bring it out again. So there's a whole lot of factors that happen and there is a whistleblower, they will make a phone call, you've gotta go find a document. And in a lot of these communities, now they'll come to me and we'll go in with some documents. I can see when the light bulb comes on and I'm like, yes, okay. This community is ready to roll. Now we're going to go over here right. because they will catch on and they're usually pissed. And I actually hope if people read the book, when they close it, you get mad too and realize that you too can do exactly the women of Tonganoxie, Kansas. They ran Tyson out on a rail. The women of Hannibal, Missouri, they ran for office and won. My gosh, in Flint, Michigan right now, we have the youngest uh, gentleman on city council, 19 years old. Do not think for one minute. Just because you don't have a PhD or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a, a cocktail waitress somewhere or you're working as a you know a law clerk that everyone thinks because you have stilettos on and blonde hair and big boobs, you're stupid. We shouldn't be underestimating people. You can do this. Find your cause, whatever it may be, and it may not be water. 
You need the tips, the strategy, and the tools to fight. Learn them and game on. And you can do it. And I'm telling you, the first step you take and you you get just a little bit of that win or you're like, oh, my gosh, I understand this. Or, my gosh, I got such and such a neighbor to talk to me. And you see it. It's contagious. And the momentum builds. It's very empowering that you can fix or change a law or get involved or get noticed or get on a Superfund site or get information to a doctor and see what's happening. Change in your own backyard. I love it. We do that. So exciting. We, the people. I think we, the people, have forgotten to believe in we, the people. And I know we get like overwhelmed, freaking fatigue. I'm with you, but I can, I can pass on a lot of fights. We are water. We are sustained by water. Do not think that we might not have water, especially if we keep going at this rate. And let's get serious about climate change. And we talk about climate change in the book. And we talk about Johannesburg, South Africa, where they literally were going to have day zero. But here's what they did, what we're not doing and where we can learn from. The people responded. The people were involved. The people rationed. They did what they had to do. The agencies responded. They became prepared and they diverted day zero. We've got to get and stop the argument. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. This is all of our issues. We need to work together. We need to be informed. We need to be prepared. And we can divert. And there are solutions to these issues. The problem is we won't get busy doing them. And that's where we have to go. We, as a consumer, cannot take anything for granted anymore. And I do believe that we, the people, have an absolute obligation to ourselves and to our family and to our communities to make it our job to find out and be informed. Um, There's no reason why you shouldn't be. And to act and to find your own courage and not be afraid to step up and um, get involved. Mm. Because Superman is not coming. No, but tag it. You're here. We're (laughs) it. Powerful Aaron Brockovich in the house. Thank you so much. I do want to share with you. It's great to have this conversation because, you know, when I go to parties and people ask me about water and it turns into this conversation, I'm telling you, I know what they say when I leave. They're like, oh, my God. God, don't invite her again. Are you so, kidding? People are going to freak out. They're going to love this. Uh, it's, it's, I know it's overwhelming. I feel it too, but we talk about it come back and book. we could talk for two hours just about PFOS. Absolutely. But you know what? I will share with this. And my program ramp, realize, assess, and motivate. It's all about oneself. Realize who you are, assess who you are. And, you know, look, oftentimes we look for a hero. And the only person standing in your own way of being that hero is frankly you. And we all get that little negative voice in our head that tells us, do this, don't do that. You know, realize that you can have that strength and courage. You can find it. Assess. Don't assess your bank account. Just assess who you are. What's your character? What's your loyalty? What's your respect? What's your cause? What's your passion? And and what I wanted to say here is we do live in a crazy world. I'm thinking my head's going to spin off. I really do. And it's just going faster and faster and faster and faster. And what's happening for us as people, we're losing our mojo and we've lost our motivation and we are frankly exhausted. 
and what you need to do when you hit that wall. And you will, as you move mm. into whatever your causes are, and it may not be water, you got to know how to fight and you got to have the tools. One of the tools that you have to do is self-renewal. We're all on our computers, right? And when a bunch of data comes in or an overload, what do you get? The blue dot spins and spins. That thing really irritates me. That happens to us. That's when you need to disconnect. You must do it. And get back to a walk on the beach. Get back to a hike. Get outside and plant begonias. Go play a round of golf. Disconnect and reconnect to yourself. It's amazing when you do that you can hear yourself think. You can feel yourself feel. You can take a moment to breathe and get clarity. And when you do that self-renewal, you'll find yourself waking up the next day with some motivation and energy to go at it again. Master of make-believe and musings, metaphysical, Mr. Matthew McConaughey graced the show back on episode 555 in a conversation that traverses creativity and explores why the choices we make today are the compound assets for our future. Here's a little slice of that heaven. How do you feel about this, you know, later chapter in the reconnaissance of you becoming like this guru, you know, this person of wisdom that I don't know when it began, maybe it began when you gave that commencement speech, but at some point you kind of went from Matthew the actor into somebody who, you know, was, was basically imparting life lessons to the world. Like, how do you think about that? Or how do you feel about that? Was that intentional or is it just a byproduct of, of who you are? I think it started off more of a byproduct and then has gained some intention along the way. Um, you know, to go back to that, uh, it's live. We're all in the show, the recording, the camera's mm. always recording, you know, and, uh, ask myself, are you making legacy choices for yourself right now, McConaughey? Are you living in a way live that is useful for yourself and others? Um, look, I'll say this. I go back to University of Texas and I had an idea for this script to screen class as a professor. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I'm still like, I'm talking to the students. I feel like I was there the other day. But then I start sharing things with them and they're going like, whoa, that's awesome. Thank you for telling me that. I'm like, oh, that wasn't obvious. And I'm like, no, we didn't know that. And so I started to go, well, wait a minute. You got 28 years of experience of acting and being on sets, Matthew. Oh, geez, that's right. Add that up. You do have some experience that may be innate to you now that is novel to a student. So you do have something to share, some experience to share that maybe someone else didn't have. Um, I, you know, Dip sharing this this book has got quite a few tools in it for how to find our frequency individually and hopefully as a collective. We're going through a time right now of great distrust. We don't know what to believe in. You don't trust uh, trust others. You all of a sudden you look up. You don't trust yourself, and that little revolution can go back and forth. Well, now I don't trust myself. Now I really don't trust you. Uh, now I don't believe myself. Now I don't I don't believe in anything. And those are dead end streets uh, ultimately. So how do we rebuild some trust? I think it's through values. 
I think values are bipartisan, non-denominational. I think those are the solid stepping stones that we need to each look in the mirror and ask ourselves what we can be better at on a daily basis. And that'll be incremental steps out of this time into hopefully a more evolved state mm. that we can get, get out of and mm. help us look back at 2020 as an actual red banner year of recreation and recreation and a and, and new beginning. Um, the other idea is this, we gotta remember we're never gonna arrive. There's not a destination. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, it's, 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 it's like our lives and say America, the Langston Hughes poem, America, yet. That's what should we, we should be chasing, yet. We never get there. With the social, uh, the cultural revolution we're going, we're not gonna get to perfect justice, but if we can make an incremental ascension forward, that's it. Could stay in the race, commit to the chase. And with ourselves, can we just keep chasing our better selves? A little bit, and know we're gonna screw up along the way. Can America just keep, we're an aspiration. Our lives are an aspiration. America is an aspiration. It's a chasing of yet. And I think that's what we ultimately are as, as, as individuals. We all should be chasing ourselves. What more fun, wild, adventurous thing to chase in your life than yourself? Well, there's a there's an unbridled optimism to that that's infectious and that I love. Uh, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. We can we can end it on this. Uh, you know, I, I can't let you go without digging a little bit more deeply into kind of where we're at um, in this American experiment right now. We're headed into an election. We are extremely divided. Communities, families, individuals are having difficulty finding common ground, being able to even effectively communicate. And there is this, um, you know, layer of, of whether it's fake news or misinformation that's confusing people and driving us apart. And I have this sense of us fracturing and I'm trying to figure out how to get my hands around it, how I can communicate with my brothers and my sisters, how I can be more empathetic. Like, how can we look to what unites us, to our commonalities, which are so much more robust than the details that might divide us on paper or on social media. But I find myself concerned about what I'm seeing and where we're heading. Yeah. So how do we how do we write the ship, Matthew? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> Solve this problem for me. And here we go. For us. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I was talking about earlier, yeah, it is times of great distrust uh, in others and ourselves. Our social contracts are broken. Our personal contracts are broken. We don't have expectations of ourselves or others. Right now, the private sector down to the individual has more power than ever. We can't trust our leadership. Politics is a broken business. Uh, what do we want? People are wanting security. Well, we're all individuals. Wait a minute. What's, where's the collective? Uh, it's a, we got to, we got to, all this is being politicized along the way. The body counts are being added up for which side of the, which side of the aisle wants to win. That's the only numbers each side is counting. Um, we got an election year. Are we going to have a civil war? Man, can we just get to January, 2021, which is a symbolic day, but nothing more than a symbolic day. Do we have a 10 year restoration? Do we have a 20 year restoration? I don't know how long it'll go. What can we rely on? Uh, Empathy, one thing. A little amnesty right now. It's a tough time for everybody. I don't know how to make a collective change. I don't know how to make an overall systemic change or a law. I don't think people want to be legislated like that. I think it 
again, comes down to each one of us need to look in the mirror and go, how can I be a little bit better? What can I do a little bit better? I don't have to be great. I don't have to be perfect. There is no best. I can be a little bit better. How can I be a little more fair? How can I understand that my brother and sister are also hurting, maybe in more and different ways than I am? How can I have a conversation without a condemnation? How can I have more patience to take a breath and listen and let someone who hasn't been heard speak more loudly than maybe they need to, but, but hear them? How do we make this time not just a flash in the pan? Uh, how, do, how do we be honest where the choices we make for ourselves selfishly are also the best choices for the most amount of people? And then and there's not any specific recipe for that, but take that into consideration when we make our choices for ourselves. Um, again, responsibility and freedom. We're going to have to build our way out of this time. We're going to have to break a damn sweat for a while. And I think we have to have that long view, that feeling like this is going to go on for a while. Now, how can we make that a part of our daily instincts of how we go about our lives? How do we treat ourselves? How do we treat our loved ones? How do we treat our employees? How do we treat people we work with? How do we treat what we're building? And what are we, are we just for profit or are we for purpose as well? Uh, what's our purpose? I'm not interested in politics. I'm interested in some purpose, though. Politics is a broken business. We don't know who to trust. So that's what I mean by the private sector down to the individual. You have more power right now to define your future than ever. Because um, you actually don't have anywhere, anyone else uh, up there, no institution to rely on <laughs> for that guidance. So understand it, man. Some of us are going, well, what the hell, man? Give me a map. I don't know what to trust in. I don't know what's a consensus here. Um, some of us are going to do well right now because we can just keep our head above water. Just try and make it through this time. It's going to pass. We're going to be moving forward. We are not turning the page yet, though. When the time comes to turn the page on COVID, when the time comes to turn the page on the Cultural Revolution, the only way it's going to work is that the collective, all of us, every color, every, if you've got COVID, if you don't, every color of skin, do it together to some form or fashion. I think, you know, as much as we are a nation of individuals and love our individualism, we are failing in, at any sort of collective responsibility. Mm. We have failed with the mask of seeing that as a civic duty instead of a damn, don't you tell me what to do, bullshit. It's, it's the wrong kind of selfish. It's actually not a selfish move to, to, to fight those fights. There is a responsibility that we can choose to take for and with each other and ourselves. And those two are not exclusive. My hunch is it lies in values. My hunch is it lies in responsibility, accountability, risk-taking, sense of humor. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. That we can just be a little kinder, a little more fair, a little more empathetic, a little more understanding, a little more forgiving. Also holding on accountability. We, no, no, this isn't going to be a free ride. I'm not in for a world kumbaya. No, we gotta, we, it's going to take work. And the greatest thing about America is when America's working right is – if you're willing to work at something and educate yourself and go after something, you more so than anywhere else should have the opportunity to achieve that, but not without the work and the education and the hustle to go do it. So, you know, I'd say this, man, start off with trying to create more green lights for yourself and others and see where those two meet and see that actually being selfless is actually a very selfish act. Creating more for others is actually very selfish for yourself as well. And make sure you're trying to make sure your selfish choices for yourself also light the way 
for more people as well. Boom. Beautifully put. Think about this. Every single day, you make about 35,000 decisions. You decide to get up or hit snooze. You decide to challenge yourself or take a back seat. You decided to listen to your favorite podcast today. Well, the man behind the wildly popular Farnham Street blog, books, and podcast, Shane Parrish, is here today, a former computer scientist and spy who is obsessed with this process of optimizing decision-making. Here's an excerpt from episode 513, where he shares keys to this process. How do you think about the difference between failure and success? Often luck. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I've had a lot of failure. Um, I'll let you know when I get some success. But I think from a decision-making point of view, the decisions where you know the outcome or you can't fail are not really worth thinking about. And you have to determine if failure is something you can handle or not. And often we are going to fail. And how do we recover from that? Uh, is super important to achieving success because the odds that you succeed the first time you try something are pretty slim. Mm -hmm. If you look at like we're all walking today and we fell down walking hundreds, if not thousands of times, but we got up and we did it again. And so often life is just getting up one more time than you fall down. But going back to decision-making again, reversible, irreversible, like where can you fail? Where can't you fail? And how we think about what failure means. I think we attach so much meaning to it and there's so much ego that is infused into, um, into that. Uh, we're afraid to look bad. We don't wanna you know, appear to have failed to our peers and things like that, that prevent us from perhaps being more open about taking certain risks that, risks that could, you know, in the long term create uh, you know, a, a, a better and bigger growth curve. Well, that goes back to sort of like how we're living our life. Like whose scorecard are we using? Are we using an internal scorecard? Are we using an external scorecard? Am I failing to meet up to somebody's expectations of me? Is that something I want to do or do I want freedom? And the freedom in this case would be freedom from living up to other people's expectations, freedom from sort of um, feeling the need to fulfill society's obligations to me. And um, I'm not saying like break the law or anything like that, but we're so often driven by like you're, you're subliminally and otherwise told that the people who attain power, money, and fame are the sort of the people to emulate. Like my kids come home from school and they start talking about um, all these celebrities. I'm like, man, I want you home talking about like Richard Feynman and <laughs> Albert Einstein. Yeah. And like, these are the heroes, uh, right. right? Like Elon, uh, not these mm -hmm. political sort of people or not these Hollywood movie stars. And that's, I don't, I don't want them in that life where like they see that as success because that leads to how do I get that success? Which leads to, I can step on other people. Mm -hmm. I can do these things that are mutually exclusive from living a life that uh, of meaning to, in order to try to attain these things. And um, I think that we know, I mean, um, that that's not the path that we want our kids on and like who we have as our heroes is super important. Too. Right, heroes, walk amongst us. We just don't do a great job of shining a light on, on the best ones. And in order to, 
to do that, you have to do a little counter-programming against what mainstream society is feeding all of us, not just young people. But I think some of that comes from just, we were talking about this earlier, reflection, right? Like where, where do I wanna go in life? And that comes from being alone with your thoughts and working through your thoughts and having many false steps and sort of um, being conscious about, am I working towards those goals or am I not working towards them? Mm -hmm. Is this where I actually want to end up? Because so many of us reach our destination and we're like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. This yeah. isn't where I wanted to go. And part of the problem is we didn't check in on the way. And maybe that's a weekly check-in. Maybe it's, uh, I mean, I do it sort of like twice a year at this point, but maybe it's monthly. Maybe it's sort of like something you you book a holiday with yourself for a, you know, a day every every year. And you sort of like go to this isolated area where you're not around people. And maybe you walk in nature or maybe you sit in a hot tub or you do whatever you need to do. And you think about, am I living the life that I want to be living? What are the mm -hmm. things that I'm doing that are, leading me to where I want to go? What are the things that are getting in the way of where I want to go? And what would I regret if I died today? Is there a relationship that I want to repair? Is there somebody that's not serving me that I need to get rid of because I don't like their anger? Those are the questions that we can sort of walk through mentally. And then we start, you know, once you realize it, then you put it into action. And as you said at the start, action is really hard, right? You might have a really close friend who's always angry and it's affecting you and it's affecting your health. But at the end of the day, you know you need to let them go because they're not going to get you where you want to go and you can't help them. What does that daily practice look like for you? I think a lot like that. I mean, I don't do daily. I sort of do it um, on a, I have regular like scheduled appointments with myself to make sure that I do it. But I'm always thinking about um, like, what is it that, how can I help this person? And at some point you can't help them. And you need to sort of like, your environment will dictate a large part of where you go in life. So who you hang around, uh, how much you care about other people dictates, I mean, to a large extent, how fulfilled and you know meaningful your life is. Um, so yeah, it's just, I mean, everybody has their own routine. There's no yeah. one prescription for it and um, there's no wrong answer to it. It's just, I think that if there was a wrong answer, it would be like, I'm just not thinking about it because it's hard, right? It's hard to be like, I don't want to be where I'm at. It's hard to absolve uh, or hard to take responsibility for being in that spot, right? And we're all born into a set of circumstances that we don't control. We don't control sort of our parents' socioeconomic status. We don't control our zip code. We don't control how much they care. We don't control the trajectory we're put on. But at some point in life, you take control of that trajectory. And maybe it's 18 for some people, maybe it's 25 for other people, but at that point you're in control. So you don't control what point you're at, but you control where you go from there. Mm -hmm. And you do that through your habits, you do that through your thinking, you do that through your decision-making. And the question that I want everybody to ask is like, where am I going? Am I gonna get there? Is what I'm doing today gonna get me where I wanna go? And if not, what do I need to do in order to get where I wanna go? Mm -hmm. I'm here listening to you and I'm like, this is amazing. And I'm also like, I'm noticing my resistance also because I'm like, this guy's trying to write a computer program for, you know, an operating for system living, for life. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a very emotional, sensitive person. And I'm I'm like, where does where does intuition, you know, where does that 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 like I'm a huge spark believer where you don't know where it came from and you're like, I'm channeling something where I don't even know the you know from whence it arrives. Like, is there a place for that kind of 
spirituality to live in the work that you do. Totally. Uh, I believe that that's a huge component to our lives, right? So I'm not, um, I don't believe in just pure rationality. I don't think that's the way we should live lives. And I think that emotion and sort of spirituality and community and all of those things are also part of it, right? Mm -hmm. We're part of an ecosystem, but individually um, we have emotions. We need to sort of not deny them, not suppress them. Right? I think so many problems in society today, from my vantage point, is people overanalyzing their feelings, trying to suppress them and not actually feeling them and delaying the feeling instead of just being present with the emotions. I think that there's a lot of studies that say if you actually feel the feelings when you first feel them, they sort of last 90 seconds to sort of like three minutes. Like if you're angry and you don't suppress it and you don't sort of like analyze it and you just feel that anger, it'll go away pretty quickly. But it's when you suppress it that it starts to crop up again and again. You become passive aggressive and you become aggressive aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to feel those feelings. And there's decisions that you're going to make in life that are not rational and that's okay, right? They don't have to be rational. I think what you want to do is just be aware that you're you're conscious of the fact that you're not making a rational decision or you're you're okay sort of like throwing the rational side of yeah. your brain out. Like quitting a great high profile job to start a blog is you know not necessarily the most rational decision you can make. Um, who you marry, who you're in a relationship with, what that connection is like, those are, those are not purely rational decisions. Those are very emotionally driven chemistry, physiological response-based decisions. And I think that those are equally powerful, if not in some cases more powerful than rational decision-making. Yeah, I think they can be channeled to great effect as long as you have a healthy understanding of that emotional landscape. Like when am I feeling a spark of inspiration or when am I experiencing some kind of overwhelming emotion that I, that I know uh, is, is driving me towards making a certain type of decision versus, oh, I'm just repeating a pattern as a result yeah. of my childhood trauma. Yeah. And you know, I've got to, this is gonna take me down the wrong path. Even though I feel strongly about doing this, I know well enough to know that that's not the right thing to do. But so often that becomes an excuse today too, right? Like we, we sort of like, oh, I was brought up that way. And, but going back to this what I what said, I do. this is what I do, right? So we, we tell ourselves that narrative and that narrative becomes reality when another narrative you can replace that with. And often we have to replace narratives to get sort of better narratives is that I'm in control of my life. And no matter what's happened to me, it's, it might not be my fault that I'm in this situation, but it's my responsibility how I handle this situation going right. forward. It's my responsibility to respond to the situation in the best way that I can. And I own that and nobody else owns that for me and I can't blame my past, but everything in my past has got me here and that's okay. That past has put you on this trajectory. It's put you at this moment in time where you go from here is completely up to you though. And you control that and nobody else controls that. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep 
inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And 
they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay. In 2015, Chris Mosier became the first known transgender man to represent the United States in international competition. Aside from being a Hall of Fame triathlete, an All-American duathlete, a two-time national champion, and a six-time member of Team USA, Chris is a beautiful guy. He's one of the most prominent and accomplished transgender athletes working out there right now to progress cultural perceptions and activate legislative change. Here are his words from episode 518. Transgender women and girls have been competing with women and girls for years without problem with their peers. And they've been participating on sports teams at the, at the high school level, at the elite level, and there has been no problems, right? And I think that what the discrimination against transgender women and girls actually does is takes away from the real issue about the disparity in sport and the gender gender inequity that exists in sport. Um, what we really should be focusing on is w- w- women's sports and how we uplift women's sports. And you know, I think that targeting transgender women does not do that. It doesn't help. The real problem is the the lack of access, the lack of resources, the pay inequity that exists within women's sports because of systemic discrimination. Yeah, well, certainly that's that's for real. You know, I've just put up a couple podcasts that kind of go pretty deep into that. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a huge problem. But in the track and field context, are there transgendered women who are, you know, killing it, competing no. against? There aren't. Tell me, tell me yeah, what I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I, sh- I didn't so, do any research on this, so I actually don't <laughs> so know. Track yeah. and field is the one area that, you know, when people are talking about this across the country, they're looking at two transgender girls in Connecticut who are high school student athletes who last year went one, two at state. Uh-huh. Um, when we're talking about dominating, when they went to nationals, one didn't even compete and the other placed 30th and 31st in her two races. And so, you know, yes, they have won races, but dominating is inaccurate. Right. And and I think that, you know, people really pick up on those stories. And these are two young black women. And, you know, I I bring up race again because race is absolutely a part of this. Mm -hmm. You know, being a transgender woman is absolutely a part of this. Women in sports, both cisgender and trans, have had their bodies policed for years, for decades. And it's by targeting transgender women and and focusing on people's bodies, I think that we really perpetuate that issue within women's sports. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, you know, what happens in track and field, I mean, the, the, the case study that gets brought up conflates intersex because it's all about Castor Semenya, Semenya, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And whether or not she should be allowed to compete. And that brings up a, a different, you know, kind of ripple in the, you know, fairness versus inclusion conversation, because, this is a human being who was just born a certain way, you right. know? And so should she be unable to compete and penalized because this is how the universe or God or whatever you want to call it made her in mm-hmm. a certain way? Um, I can't, 
you know, proclaim to have the answer to that, but it's an interesting, you know, conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important that we, that we remember that there's not just, there's not one way to be a man. There's not just one way to be a woman. And there are certainly categories that they have for hormones at the elite level of testing, right? Uh, but there's not just one way to be a trans mm -hmm. person either. And there's not just one way to have a body that excels in sport. So the body that a swimmer would have is going to be different than what would be helpful for an elite sprinter yeah, of course. or a rower. You know, so when we make these generalizations about trans women dominating a sport or someone like Castor Semenya, you know, having her makeup being able to dominate in sport, I think that we reach real dangerous territory. Mm. And what's the vision that you hold? Like four years, 10 years from now, like where would you like to see the state of culture and sport? You know, if it was up to you. I think that sport is one of the most magical places for people to exist. I think that sport is a vehicle for social change and the change that happens within sports in terms of policies and acceptance and inclusion can really be a guide for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it in the past and I think that we are we're at a crossroads right now where how we treat inclusion in sport is going to reflect in the rest of society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I read somewhere that that you know you were inspired by some of the great you know activist athletes out there. You know, I don't know who in particular, but you know there's these iconic images that come to mind from you know Muhammad Ali to you know the closed you know gloved fist mm -hmm. on the podium at the Olympics, mm -hmm. and the ability of the athlete to you know move culture forward and advance conversation around ideas that people are resistant to um, is a thing you know and i think that you're somebody who who is on you know the sort of you know razor's edge of this in a new and broader you know conversation around civil rights and what that means and what kind of culture and society do we want to be in and and live in and i think your advocacy is is admirable and you know i'm i'm in awe of your athletic talent and also um your strength and your courage to put yourself out there you know you know in harm's way i think in 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 a very real way like you're putting yourself at peril to get this message across and you know that may get lost in the conversation but i would imagine that that's a very real consideration for you as well your safety mm -hmm. um so uh, it's important work that you're doing and I wish you all the best and thank you for what you do. Thank you. You know, athletes have a platform and I think that athletes have social capital, not just in the United States, but in mm. the world. And we look at Olympians differently. We look at professional athletes differently. We even look at high school and collegiate athletes differently. And so I think it's an incredible position for me to be in to have this platform, you know, to have a Nike sponsorship and, and things like the New York Times article and to be able to express to people the concerns about the realities facing transgender people, not just in sport, but in our community as a whole. Yeah. You know, I want people to, to know that they can be their authentic self and continue to play the sports that they love and continue to do their passions and not have to compromise any part of their identity, to hide any part of their identity. Because when we are authentic about who we are and when we are able to, and it's not safe for everyone to come out. But if we are able to do that, you know, your entire world opens up and it, and it not just impacts you, but it impacts the people around you. And I think that's really how 
social change is created, you know, is, is that ripple effect. And so, you know, my hope is that me waking up every single day and living an awesome life can be my advocacy. And, you know, the, all the other parts I have to talk about are, you know, part of that. But I really just want people to see that, um, that I am possible, that they are possible mm. because I am possible. And, you know, nothing is, um, nothing is off limits. Like people can have a future, um, but the future that I didn't see for myself when I was younger, it exists. And for the person who's listening, who's, you know, living, you know, a secret double life or just, a, you know, is afraid to come out. Um, what are the, you know, what is, what is the kind of message that you would like to impart to that person? Yeah, there are so many factors that go into one's ability to come out. And it's, you know, now with laws and policies like this about access to care and safety, uh, there are financial concerns and, and family support concerns for young people. There are, you know, very real possibilities that people will lose their house or their, you know, apartment and the housing, their employment and things like that. And so there are so many factors that go into it that I would never tell somebody that they have to come out. You know, mm -hmm. and I think this is one of the problems that we have in professional sports is like we are looking for that out gay male athlete in the big four sports, like when are they going to yeah. come out? There are so many factors in any LGBTQ plus person's existence of, of whether or not to come out. You know, my message is, is would, to that person would just be that they are valid and their identity is valid and real and that they are worthy of love and respect and dignity. You know, I've had the great pleasure of conversing with a vast diversity of extraordinary humans, but every once in a while, every blue moon, I luck into a mind meld that elevates an exchange into a higher gear. This was such for my conversation with Hakam Tafari on episode 557. So here's a little taste of that experience. There's so much beauty in suffering. Mm. There's so much beauty in suffering. And I, and I know it sounds so, it's not cliche, but it's, people are like scratching their head. How can you suffer? How can there be beauty in suffering? When you go through the suffering that a, a lot of us have that have been on the show, that have become successful, is because when you go through that suffering, you go through such a darkness, you go through such a bottom feeder kind of exposure that you learn to have gratitude for the smallest thing, the smallest thing. And when I, when I think about um, the times when I didn't think that I was gonna really make it out of that space. There were times, Rich, when I would be in the car park of Whole Foods, like crying, crying my heart out, screaming at the top of my lungs, looking around, like, how the fuck did I end up in this situation? One of the stories that I always tell people, and it's a, it's a it's a story. 
but it's a story that I, I, I often tell people because mental health and suicide is so big. And I know in this day and age, it's being amplified and people are talking about it. But when you hit a certain level of suffering and you think there is nothing else, you can look back at these times in that darkness and be like, man, if I didn't know the depths and the levels of darkness, I wouldn't be able to enjoy this moment right Mm. now. So there was a time when I used to pack a gun with me everywhere. Orlando was an, Orlando used to be, and Orlando still kind of has a very, um, you've got the Disney side mm-hmm. and you've got the super rough, like home invasions, like they'll come and run in your house. They'll shoot you in the middle of Walmart. That's like Florida, right? Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Sometimes I pray for my kids still out there, but still, um, you know, Florida was, you know, Florida is a, is a, is a state where you have your stand, your ground law. So you can come into somebody's residence and they can shoot you on self-defense uh-huh. and that's it. It's right. called stand your ground or the castle law. Which is so, in- interesting in light of what's going on with Brianna Taylor right now. Yeah, so think right. About that. And Oof. then also you mentioned to me that the cop who put his knee on George Floyd's neck now is living down the street from Or was daughters. living down the street. Yeah, from, from my kids. Yeah, in, in Florida. That's insane. Yeah. Which is, an, uh, that's, that's a whole nother story in itself. But, you know, just to, to bring it back to this, that was such a dark, dark time. And and as I said, uh, you know, for me, I used to pack because where my parents live, it's not a rough neighborhood, but there was a lot of home invasions. There was a lot of breakings. There was, my parents are old. And and again, remember I told you I had to move back in with my parents? Mm-hmm. Well, after couch surfing and yada, yada, back my again. parents had- After the, after the divorce, bro, back in. 37, 38. So this is the umpteenth time of moving uh-huh. back with my parents. But if I didn't have, you know, my, my relationship with my parents now, I used to be scared of them. I used to fear them. I used to, now they're like my brother and sister. The relationship is amazing. And this was, Partly the reason, I'm not going to say the, my job, but this, this last thing with my parents and for them to see how broken I was, was really, really deep. And, and, and to cry with your parents is even deeper. And I don't know if you've ever had that, but when, you've, when you're in the presence of your mother or your father and you are legit all crying in despair, it's a hard, hard pill to swallow, man. Mm. And it was. And it was hard to come home knowing that I lost everything. And it was hard knowing to come home that I had three kids that I'm still paying for, that I'm still paying for their school. I'm still paying for everything. And I can't talk to them because she won't let me talk to them. So all this stuff is going down. Meanwhile, I'm still paying for the house. I'm still paying for the minivan. I'm still paying for all their extracurricular activities. And I'm at home at my parents' house. (laughs) 
With a shotgun underneath the bed. <laughs> crying in the, in the parking lot of Whole Foods. I mean, lot. did you have a sense, you know, this idea that you can't be a phoenix without the ashes, right? Like yeah. this idea that you're being, you're being burned for a reason, that there's a purpose or that there's something to be mined and learned from this experience so that you can emerge more fully integrated. I mean, with all of this, spiritual education behind you, you must've been able to hold on to some aspect of that or to believe or to choose to believe that there is some kind of purpose or lesson to be learned here. I did, you. but it was very little in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, It was very little because although I had the running that kind of took me out of that space, right? Cause I would run. And I mean, run running with, was then, that becomes your new healing. That modality. becomes my new healing mechanism, yeah. right? So I had the running that became my new healing mechanism and, and I could grab onto that. And I still had my spiritual faculties, but I wasn't leaning onto them as much as I could. So in that inner room, I had my friends, you know, I had a really good, I have a really good girlfriend of mine. Her name is Christina. My ex-wife was named Christina. My best friend was Christina uh -huh. at the time. Christina was the first person that I went to when I got essentially at the house and I was couch surfing. She looked after me basically for two summers because I was broke. Mm. And she looked after me for two summers along with my parents and really kind of helped me get back on track. And then, as I said, you know, because in that time I had probably contemplated suicide four or five times. And, you know, the, 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 the one story that I was trying to bring up and I, and I really bring this story was the story was me in the parking lot of Orlando Zen Center. A friend of mine, Sandra Bianco, love Sandra. Sandra was the one who said, you need something. Come to the temple. At the, at the time, I didn't know what the temple was. She said, come to the temple. I was like, okay. So I drive up there and I've got this big Springfield 45 next to me. And at the time I had just got off the phone with my ex. We had just gone into a major argument. She's asking for more money for the house. I'm, I'm literally just like shaking and I'm just shaking uncontrollably. And I'm like, do I just do it right now? I'm looking at the gun. I'm in front of the temple. I'm looking at the gun. And then I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm gonna go do whatever this fucking thing is. I don't know what I'm gonna get into, but I'm gonna do it. And that ended up becoming my, that, that could have been my last day on the earth. And instead I chose to sit in front of a wall in silence for an hour and a half. Mm. That's heavy, man. Next up is stellar athlete, human, longtime friend, coach, and star of Coach's Corner, none other than Chris Houth. Coming in hot with some sagacious advice from episode 514 about how to maintain enthusiasm and engagement with your fitness during this stage of quarantine. 
an important thing for all of us is that we want to just stay healthy and get through this with the energy and the strength that we that we currently have and hopefully can build upon that versus deteriorate in any way and not even from a from a virus standpoint and the concerns with that but also just because this time requires so much extra energy and everything we're doing from homeschooling to everybody being in the house and patients and so forth i mean me with four kids here at home it's and all of them teenagers mm -hmm. you can just imagine how they're all staring at me going you got to be kidding me we're so sick and tired of you <laughs> yeah but you know, and so they're being healthy, getting enough sleep, eating well, and and having some sort of physical outlet every day makes a huge difference on having the patience and perspective for them because it's difficult for them currently too. Yeah. And also it's going to be of memory for all of us, regardless how it hit us, whether in a positive way, in a negative way, that's the unique thing about this. It hit the brakes on the entire world and we're all gonna all remember this forever. Our teenagers, our younger children, us as adults, um, 20 somethings, 30 somethings, everybody has been impacted by this. Everybody's going to remember this time, right? And people have been saying it's our 9-11 moment or this and that, but it has hit so many more spectrums of society. And there's a lot of ways we don't control, we don't know how it hits everybody. So all we know is how it hits us. Doesn't mean we don't have empathy and care and respect for those who are working through this and healthcare workers and those who've been hit by tragedy or those who are losing their jobs and so forth, but it hits every one of us individually. And so what are we going to do with it? And that's what we said earlier is how do we want to kick out of this, but also how do we make it memorable and, and, and it's going to be memorable either way. So if that is going to be memorable either way, how do we want it to be memorable? Mm -hmm. In a positive, meaningful, caring, thoughtful, family sharing, joyous way? For others, it's not. It's not going to be that. But we don't control that. And it's like, you know, it, it's, I was reminded of that Viktor Frankl quote, right? If you can't change or control the external circumstances, change yourself or, you know, your own internal circumstances and that's one of those this is one of those times that we are we only control us and how we present ourselves to the world and part of that is this whether it's family whether that's work whether that's our loved ones whether that's our body and how we go about our day and carry ourselves as that beacon of strength and support and outward love to others yeah i can think of only a handful of other moments in my life where the world sort of stopped. You know, there's 9-11, there's when Princess Diana, you know, died, mm -hmm. there's yeah, the OJ, yeah. you know, there's certain things like that, but this is uniquely different from all of those in that it is global and is impacting all of us. And there's never been an instance in which we had to stay home and couldn't go about our day. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I think with that, it gives it gives this experience a certain quality that I think has the power to unite us. There's a commonality of experience that we're all sharing right now, um, but I fear the divisiveness that I see, and I think there's a certain kind of toxic environment out there that if we're not 
really paying attention to ourselves and and um, you know focusing on our priorities and, and and really striving to be that beacon that one could succumb to and there's a so there's this these opposing forces of the the, the kind of unifying um, aspect of this that can be uplifting versus this destructive you know force of negativity that I see out there as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, we watched as a joke, not as a joke, but with with intention, but it was funny. We watched Groundhog Day the other day, uh-huh. the Bill Murray movie. And it was weird because I've watched that a few times, but I never really took the message as clearly as it was as a, when I watched it this time with regards to how he was just being indifferent about everything, right? And just like smoking right. and doing all kinds of getting drunk and <laughs> yeah. being a jerk. But then once he started paying attention to the lives around him and caring and giving, he found fulfillment in that repetition, right? He found love that finally broke the loop, but he fulfillment, despite the, the day continuing, he was fine with it because he was giving and he was focused on externally helping others versus just focusing on on on, on what he get out of a daily day repeating itself mm-hmm. over and over again but anyway i mean it's bill murray i mean you can only get so much message but i thought it was interesting because here we are we're living a very similar groundhog day like i i don't know how many times over the last few weeks i've said like what day is it i'm not even they all feel the same right right with the kids home there's no sort of weekend versus day but as soon as the process takes over, like we were saying earlier, and knowing what we need to execute on every day, whether work, whether family, whether training, whatever it is, there's sort of a fulfillment in that repetition that I've I've come to enjoy actually these last 10 to 14 days of, all right, accepting this is the process currently, and I'm going to make the best in the present moment right. of this process. It's really the only way, acceptance, Yep. You know, railing against what is will only lead to resentment and frustration. Yeah. So to embrace what's happening and shift your perspective and look at it as, you know, I think it helps to understand that everybody's going through it. You haven't been, you know, singled out for this experience um, is helpful. Uh, But the only way to find peace is through acceptance. For sure. For sure. And it is also with regards to, like you were talking about, being sort of stuck with this lack of compass and direction currently as we pull back to the training aspect and the athlete aspect. But the athlete's mindset is exactly that. Like you said, the awareness to stay in the moment and do the best you can do at the task at hand, Hmm. whatever that task is, right? If it's currently with my family or currently at at work or currently in this process of training or currently you know going on a hike and noticing nature around us like that that's all we can focus on and that's the best place to focus on in the current moment in the present moment yeah um have you had any athletes that are just completely unraveling? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm probably busier than ever currently just because so many are at home and A, have more time to train or B, yeah. a lot more, more emails. ideas. 
Exactly. A lot more emails, a lot more phone calls. I'm also taking this time, like I was talking earlier, about going everybody's, going over everybody's running form and cycling form and stretch cord form or those that can open water swim. And they're all sending me videos. So I'm going through that. But there are definitely those who are completely off the rails. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and there's those just as on the other end of the spectrum that are completely unmotivated. It's, and, and they just, it's like, all right, well, I know I can get to a certain level of fitness again. And I, I can, it's hard to argue against that. The only part that I say there is that when we come out of this in that future version of ourselves, how long will it come to get back to par and get to where you want to get to versus staying somewhat close to par and then just increasing the effort, the training, the fitness, that piece that you want to get to, to your event. Mm -hmm. Doubling up on that is a lot. I mean, that's going to take a serious long amount of time if you take the next four months completely off and do nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing to keep in mind. There's a basic maintenance level that our body can be just a few weeks removed from getting back to basically par fitness, being pretty fit, but not perfectly primed for an event. And that's sort of where we want to bubble right now, just below the surface of, okay, I'm maintaining a healthy body that it is strong enough and healthy enough in order to then up the training when that urgency, when that time comes again. The other thing that other athletes have noticed, Rich, is that those that are completely overtrained and keep adding stuff, they're realizing by doing less, how much better they're sleeping, how much better they're feeling. They're coming out of that fog. Oh, that's interesting. They're coming out of that fog of fatigue for the first time going, wow, I didn't even really realize how tired right. I actually was. I'm like, right, there right. you go. Yeah, that's so. great. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So little did I know that after hosting serial health food entrepreneur and Silicon Valley juice slinging mogul, Doug Evans, way back on episode 221, that I would eventually be involved in inciting a sprouting revolution amongst the RRP community. Here's an excerpt from Doug's second appearance on the show, episode 524, our primer on the power of sprouts as an ultrafood for health, weight loss, and optimum nutrition. It's been cool to like kind of watch all these people take what they're learning from your book and then sharing it and seeing some of this stuff like go viral. Well, the, the thing is that at one point, if you had vegetables in your life and maybe it's too, I'm not a historian and I cheated my way through high school. So I really don't uh -huh. know when, but there was a point in time that if you had vegetables, you either grew them yourself or you knew who grew them. And fast forward today, most people have no idea where their vegetables are coming from. They're getting them in the supermarket and most of America is in food deserts. So they mm -hmm. don't even have the quality of vegetables and, and produce in their supermarket. So now we live in a convenience culture. So when I was living in New York, San Francisco, LA, there was always access to fresh produce, either in a farmer's market or a health food store or supermarket. I could always get fresh produce. But when I went back to nature and in my community, there's 600 people in a hundred square miles and there is no health food store. 
where, where we live. This power of empowerment and sovereignty around sprouting was, was something that I couldn't believe it. Like when I came up with this like idea, I thought that it was flawed. Like there, I must be missing something. And that kind of led to me, you know, calling up a Michael, Dr. Michael Greger and calling up Dr. Oz and calling up Mark Hyman and Dean Ornish and Joel Furman and Joel Kahn, calling these people and saying, hey, talk to me about sprouts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I even talked to Dr. Josh Axe, you know, who wrote the keto book. So some of these people were keto, some were paleo, some were functional medicine, some were plant-based. And the thing that they all had in common, they all love sprouts mm -hmm. and they all had good things to say about sprouts. And that was after those, that part of my research was done. I even spoke to Andy Weil, right? Who was hard to get a hold of uh -huh. and he loves broccoli sprouts. And it was just like, wow. Nobody's shit talking the sprouts. And it, it, there was nothing. And I couldn't believe and Juji Mufu like adds sprouts to every meal. Like he's yeah. growing more sprouts than he can eat, which is a big feat because he eats 4,000 calories a day. Um, but he adds sprouts to every meal. And like I envisioned, I, the, you talk about manifestation, like I manifested like in my mind, like there would be a guy who you'd never in a million years would eat sprouts. Uh -huh. Like this was a guy who you'd expect to eat a cow alive. Um, and um, like now the guy is like eating sprouts. He's super every sprout meal. guy. Super yeah. sprout guy. Yeah. Well, you look great. I said that the minute that you walked in the door and I probably saw you like, I don't know, six weeks ago or something like that. Like, and I know that you've been running a lot and you've been wearing the Vibram five fingers running out in the <laughs> desert and you have a nice color to yourself and there's a brightness in your eye. Like you are, you know, certainly if nothing else, like a living embodiment of, you know, healthy lifestyle, like your energy is infectious. You have so much enthusiasm for this lifestyle and the things that you talk about and you talk about it so eloquently and beautifully. And you are the ambassador that we need. Like, how are we gonna clone Doug Evans so he can go into all of these communities <laughs> and espouse the, you know, revolutionary benefits of, you know, eating this way? I mean, you have to plant a lot of seeds, uh -huh. Rich. The like, seed, the seed metaphor just keeps circling back yeah. here. And look, I think it, I think it makes sense. Uh -huh. And you know, if you see, like, you know, I've been on Instagram for for a while, and I didn't engage, I didn't do things, but now, like, I'm people ask questions, I'm responding to the questions. The most amazing thing is, like, I'm learning by having to think through these corner case examples and ex expanding like my, my sphere from the community of the collective intelligence. Uh -huh. And the fact that now all these diverse range of people are now like sprouting and it resonates with them, that's, that's it. So I think, how do we do it? It's like one person at a time. Like I'll engage in a conversation with one person online or physically or at the farmer's market. In the Joshua Tree farmer's market, there's a little um, you know, couple 
that sells microgreens. Uh-huh. And um, they're now selling microgreens and they're selling my book. Mm. And I'm giving them every week, I'm giving them ideas of what to do to make it, make it easier for them to share the consciousness. Mm. And people are like buying the book that I never, like, it's so strange because it was hard for me to write a sentence, like having barely gotten through high school, uh-huh. writing a book, like I, you know, for virtually no money, like writing the book and having that part was something that was missionary. And, and then, it's gotta be incredibly gratifying when you see people that you wouldn't suspect would be interested in what you have to say, like cottoning onto it and sharing it online. It's very cool. I mean, the, the, the idea, and you know, I had spoken to you that I, I went, I met Marianne Williamson. Right. And you know, I'd listened to Return to Love. I had read A Course in Miracles and you know, her ideals. And she had talked about reparations you know, mm. as part of her policy. Um, like in one part, I didn't feel like, like the Sprout conversation would pique her interest. But the other part said, I, I think this is so important that, you know, can I infect her consciousness, you know, with lighting this up for Sprouts? Like, is this important enough, you know, for her to take seriously? Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing like this, you know, uh, and I'm saying this knowing where we are today in the world and what's going on. This is one of the most important conversations that people can have is about diet and lifestyle and nutrition. And I don't know how many of the people on your guests, on your podcast have talked about that decision of what you put in your mouth and how it affects your life. And if this could be something for literally pennies a serving dollars a day to be able to up the nutrition and level the game. And if people can have better memory, better energy, better fit, because there's all this unconscious bias. There's all of this kind of prejudice and limitations. And, you know, I have a- tribalism. Tribalism. And this is unifying, like people, you know, around food and collectivity. But, you know, what is the level of unconscious bias around people that are overweight and obese? And it's just another form mm-hmm. of discrimination. So this is, I think, plants bring people. I, I could tell you the, the woman who I um, started iVillage, I forgot her name, and she had been a long-term vegetarian. And then when she took the company public, she started to eat meat. And she said, I need to eat meat in order to, to fend off the toxicity of the public environment and all of these other people. Then she resigned and then she went back to being a vegetarian. Like she, the, the, the idea of the toxicity, you know, of, of, of the aggression that I find I'm a much nicer person. I don't get, oh, so I was trying to understand what you were saying. Basically you're saying like in order, she felt like in order for her to kind of compete in this, you know, clawing world of masculine, you know, corporate executives that she had to eat meat to to, like- She had to eat meat. To be at that level of consciousness. Yeah, like, you know, she, she went 
like she reverted back to more primal, you know, survival um, and do it. I, I didn't fully get that, but it was something that, you know, I just became aware of. And then afterwards she went back to eating plants. Mm. So I, I think that, you know, to answer, go back to the bigger question that you asked, how does this happen? It's one person at a time. It's literally having conversations and building a collective consciousness. Like at some point there's, you know, kale came onto the scene, right? And kale is no more healthy than collard greens or chard, mm. right? It, it does have- Yeah, but it became the thing. It's so interesting that that was the one that got selected. Yeah, and Brussels sprouts became a thing, right? Did, did you see the Brussels sprouts? Not thing? like kale though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, all these Who are these publicists behind, pulling the levers behind there, there, what's going to be there, the thing? There was an artificial organization called, that I talk about in the book. What? The, the, an, the, a woman kind of created the National Kale Growers Association and launched PR and did all this stuff around kale as a passion project. Mm. But it wasn't, it was like her project and it ignited. And I think that, you know, sprouts have been around for a really long time. My pitch, I pitched one publisher in New York and I made the recipes and I brought her some seeds and there'd never been a book on sprouting from a major publisher. I mean, it's just like, mm. so all these things were. And now I think that this is, the time for sprouting has come. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
Okay, up next is a true Renaissance man. His name is Kamal Ravikant. He's a beautiful, beautiful human being. And this guy seemingly has done it all from launching startups to hiking across the Himalayas, earning his US Army infantry patch, and even meditating in the Dalai Lama's monastery. And what Kamal lifted from all of these experience is this belief that life's greatest passage isn't physical and has nothing to do with financial accomplishment. In fact, our most challenging voyage is learning how to love ourselves. Here are his thoughts from episode 515. To be a phoenix, you gotta burn, you know? Um, it's like the whole process of rebirth. It's not, it's not easy, it's not painless. Mm-hmm. Um, so the precipitating event or what led mm-hmm. to love the yourself. Inciting the inciting incident. That's an incident. Yeah. So what does it be called in chemistry? <laughs> yeah. You know, when the reaction happens. Um, I was, I'd built a company, I'd self-funded it uh, for, uh, this was going to be my FU money company, mm-hmm. right? And I was doing very well. I was taking, I was actually taking away a real business from Google and Yahoo in a vertical no one had ever done before. I was pulling it off, built a great team, got the deals that no one could get. It was like, a, I was obsessed Right, and and I was built three and a half years, and then I ran out of money. Uh, you know, building a tech company three and a half years, you run out of self funded, self funded, yeah, right? Pretty much everyone's gonna run out of money, <laughs> except for a couple people. Uh, yeah. yeah, and um, I took investment, and it was doing well, and then the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything. You know, I was uh, lost my company, but along with it, I lost my my sense of self worth, if to put it mildly, because my company was my complete identity. You know, what I was doing was my identity. I've, I was depressed beyond belief. I had no money. I was living off credit cards. I remember having to make some payroll um, on the side to some of my employees of credit mm. cards. I was like, look, man, you bought him a crazy dream. I can't have your wife and kids start <laughs> because, you know. Um, wow. And it was, a, it was rough to be an understatement. There were times where I was like, look, I remember looking at the Bay Bridge from my window and really like I was so exhausted. I was burnt out. I was like... I was like really sick, burnt out, you know, whatever they call it, adrenal fatigue, all the works. Like I went to some doctor who worked with me later on it and I didn't have the strength to walk over the Bay Bridge and throw myself off. Otherwise I would have, Hmm. you know, I was literally like that. And I think it was the next night or the night after that I remember getting up and I was like, I was miserable. I was like, I can't do this. I got to get out of this. I mean, again, I get out of this or die trying. That's it. I can't be in this space. And... I walked over to my desk and I have a journal that I write in. And in there, and I still don't know where it came from. I sat down and I wrote a vow to myself. Now, I do believe in the power of personal commitment. Like if I make a commitment to myself, I'm going to keep it. That's something I've had for a while. Um, something I've trained myself for a while, but a vow. I've never wrote, written a vow to myself. That I don't even know where that word came from. And then it was a vow to love myself. It came in the moment I am not a guy who was thinking about, hey, you know what I need? You know what I really need? I think I need to love myself. That uh-huh. never occurred to me once. But yet in that moment, that's what came out. Where did it come from? I, where's that, what's that deep stillness that you mm-hmm. know runs the whole show? Well, I think what is profound about it is that it's like what you said, like, you know, if you want to be a phoenix, you got to burn. Like opportunity finds its moment in destruction, right? And it's, it's this grand opportunity to deepen your surrender to something more powerful mm. than yourself, right? It's a, it's a, it's, you're being asked to, um, you know, prostrate yourself a little bit lower to, you know, to really give over your ego even more, to humble yourself. 
and to, you know, let go, like you're being confronted with your character defects in a really profound way, right? So then you have to forgive yourself again and you have to do it even more profoundly than you had to prior. Yeah, it's actually, you know, uh, I'm learning like life, you know, it's like a building a startup, excuse the analogy, but no company just rocket ships straight up to the right. It's like, it's, it's loops, uh -huh. you know, and, um, but there is something to be said about consistency and what you, what really matters, like fitness, right? If you're not consistent in your practice, it'll show, your body will show. Sure. Same with the mind. And the mind is actually more plastic, more malleable than anything else, yet it's the one that we work on the least. We really do, right? Right. Like we really overlook it. And so that's starting to change. But. It's starting to change, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's, um, I don't know if it's effective or not. There's a lot of stuff out there. In the end, it's got to be something. What is the best workout? Or what is the best nutrition plan? It's the one you can do consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's what you got to go for. What it's consistently good that gives you results. Let's go back to forgiveness mm -hmm. uh, for a minute. I think that's an important piece in all of this. So how do you think about and practice that? Well, forgiveness, there's two forms, right? Forgiving others and forgiving yourself. Um, the novel I wrote, uh, Rebirth, that's about forgiveness, but that's about forgiving my father after he died, the whole journey. While uh, I walked a pil pilgrimage in Spain and the result of that pilgrimage was I learned how to forgive him. Right, like 550 miles. And, yeah, Camino yeah, de Santiago. Right. Um, and you know what it was? In the end, it was just learn, realizing his humanity. He was a human being, man. You can't hold humans to, to the criteria of gods, you know, but we seem to do that with the, you know, and just really his humanity. That's when you realize someone's humanity, it's very easy to forgive. But in order to do that, you have to, you have to uh, transcend your child, your childhood lens on your parent, yeah. right? And, and, and shift that perspective to see it through the eyes of the parent. Or to see the eyes of a human being looking at another human being. You can never completely remove that, right? Uh -huh. The parent, but if you can just do human being to another human being, that right away shifts it. Yeah. And you see their struggles, you know, their even faulty decision-making, whatever, but their struggles. And that's, when you understand that, if, if forgiveness actually comes naturally, because you can't help it. You kind of mm -hmm. understand. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you don't have to accept it. You don't have to say, yes, I agree. I'm glad you, you were that way. You know, I'm glad you did X, Y, Z. But you can, because forgiveness ultimately is freeing yourself. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think we look at it as a two-way street. Like I'll forgive you when you ask me for forgiveness or you admit what you did and how you wronged me. But ultimately the person who's carrying the resentment or the anger um, or that pain is the one who is suffering. The one who is the object mm -hmm. of being not forgiven is often even unaware it's, that's that. the, our great irony and so it's right? a self-inflicted harm i was at an event a thing last night it's another like little group thing that i do that was created by this organization called the nantucket project and they've created these neighborhood they're, they're called neighborhood projects where little you know small groups of people get together and they watch a, a short film that the Nantucket Project produces, and then there's a, dis a discussion ensues, kind of like to create, you know, um, uh, you know, greater community in our neighborhoods. And the movie that that we watched last night in this group setting was a short documentary about the genocide in Rwanda 
and how the president of Rwanda was faced with this um, prospect of how to repair his country in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy. And the story is told from his perspective and also through the perspective of a perpetrator of the genocide, somebody who killed a lot of people, and a woman who whose family had been killed. And ultimately, it's a story about how these two people um, forgive each other. Wow. And, it, and it, it's incredibly inspiring. And it left me thinking about the incredible exponential power of forgiveness. I think there's something beautifully transcendent and unique about forgiveness in that it, it holds this potential energy capacity to, to be so incredibly transformative. Maybe it's because it's rare. I don't know what it is about it uniquely, but, um, but to see that, it's impossible not to be moved. And it leaves you thinking about um, the people in our own lives that, that we refuse to forgive or the resentments that we hold on to about how we've been wronged and the pain that that creates and the impediments to moving forward that that constructs in our lives. Um, and also um, about the people that we've harmed and thinking more mm-hmm. deeply about people who might be out in the world carrying that kind of pain over things that we might have done. Yeah. And the and then and then forgiving ourselves, right? To repeat and loop the mantra I love myself. I think self-forgiveness is a subset of that. Is it Yeah, not? that's actually the other part of forgiveness, right? Self-forgiveness. What I found, you know, for me it's what I've learned is start with the self first. You work in the self, the rest actually gets easier. Rest just naturally starts to work. And same thing with here was like in this book, you know, I have a practice that I do on forgiving myself and it actually works beautifully. Um, and it's a very practical practice, you know, like everything, yeah. it's practical, you can do it and you will notice the shift. And what I learned was, I didn't have that in the original version. What I've learned is if you're going to make a, a commitment to love yourself, you can do this practice, you know, you can't leave the mm-hmm. past behind, but leave the shackles of the past behind. And what you do is you forgive yourself and then you start to love yourself. Mm-hmm. That's almost like the step-by-step. Right. And makes it makes a huge difference. 2020 granted the return of the total badass and ultramarathon queen, Myrna Valerio. In episode 536, she smashed stereotypes left and right, specifically the idea that you have to be a skinny white dude to be an accomplished endurance athlete. Here are some truth bombs from our exchange on all things body inclusion, identity, and diversity in the outdoors. It's wild, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of history behind why outdoor spaces have been considered off limits to people of color. Like it's sickening and disheartening mm-hmm. to hear that. Mm-hmm. I believe it to be true, but I, I can tell you that I haven't spent a lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about why that might be. Well, if you think about how the national parks were formulated um, and how that land was stolen from native populations without regard to any of their history or their domiciles. Um, I mean, that's just one part of that. Mm. And, and I, and I also think of how um, just land in the U S <laughs> ownership of land is very, very white ownership of any sort of real estate or land is, is very white. Um, and so, when someone like me appears 
Uh, like I look like I don't belong <laughs> because the ownership of land has been traditionally white. And so, I mean, there, there's the government, there are, there are private entities, um, that are also responsible for this sort of whitewashing of land in, uh, in the U S. Um, and, and then there's, you know, white supremacy, <laughs> white supremacist mm-hmm. ideology that, you know, black people don't belong and, and we are, we are seen as nuisances in many different types of spaces. So, mm-hmm. uh, and there's research on that too, on like blacks as a nuisance mm-hmm. in public spaces. It's so heavy. It's really heavy. You see, I'm smiling because it's so heavy. Um, And it's, and to have to think about that constantly, but, and I do think about it constantly. Mm -hmm. Every second that I'm on a trail, I mean, I may be smiling and I may be gracious and um, affable, but I am always, always thinking about whether or not people think I belong. And, you know, somebody can ask me a dumbass question. Uh, are they going to say something stupid or are they going to make me feel as though I'm not welcome? I'm always thinking of mm. that, and which is why I'm like so effusive with my cheer mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have to be. Do you, yeah, you feel like part of that is a defense mechanism to put other people at ease, Absolutely. which makes you feel more safe. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the story of every black runner. Yeah. Every single person who goes out and runs um, who is black you know, they, we have to signal, you know, there's a term for it. It's called signaling, uh, to signal to other people that we are safe to be around and we are not a threat. So, um, yeah, you hear stories of, of black runners who will wear a sweatshirt or a t-shirt that has a fancy college name Mm -hmm. on it or something like that Mm -hmm. to make white people feel like this person is not a threat. It doesn't matter. It, It doesn't matter what you put on. I, I, you know, again, I, I'm always decked out in the latest gear, right? Right. I wear bright colors. (laughs) I, you know, I've got my running cap and my trucker cap on, a a race shirt or something that signals to people that I'm a runner. I was, when I still lived in Georgia, I was running down my own street. Um, And I was two miles, but I had done... 14 miles. And so I was finishing up the last two miles to do a 16 miler on my way back home. A woman in a white SUV was coming in the opposite direction and stops about a quarter of a mile away from me. I'm slow. So it takes me a long time to do a quarter quarter of a mile. So I was still pretty far away from her. Uh, So she stops, she takes out her phone. She's looking at me. She's talking on her phone, looking at me, talking on her phone. Again, I am like, really decked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, sweaty, <laughs> but really decked out in all my running gear. And uh, and then she gets off the phone and slowly rolls by me and looks at me. And I wave, I'm smiling, hey, um, wondering and what the hell she was doing. And you do that on purpose doing. because on you know purpose. you, yeah, okay. And then not even five minutes later, um, cop car rolls by from that same direction that she had been going and he slowed down, roll down the window, look at me. I wave in my head. I'm like, what the fuck? Right. And that cop rolls away. And then another one comes from the opposite direction, um, slows down, rolls her window down. Um, and then I wave again. Hey, have a good day. And, uh, this is in your neighborhood. This is, two miles away from my house. And, (laughs) 
you know, and in my head, I'm like, I'm just running. I am running. I did have a walking stick that I carried because uh-huh. there were lots of dogs. Uh, there were like no leash laws <laughs> where I used to live. And so there were dogs everywhere. And so I would have to bang the stick on the ground to get the dogs away from me. Um, and so, but it was a very fancy carved walking stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, and so when I got back home, I, I, of course I posted this on Facebook cause you know, that's what I do. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we had some laughs about it. And uh, a friend, one friend called me a suspicious black lady running <laughs> SBLR. <laughs> I'm just going to get T-shirts made. And um, but some other people sort of question whether or not, you know, I looked dangerous because I had a walking stick with me. White people, of course. You know, maybe maybe, you know, she was worried. Maybe she was scared by the stick you were carrying. I was like, in my in my pink shirt, right? <laughs> I was wearing my my Nathan hyd- yeah. hydration pack and my dirty running shoes. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think gives people pause. Yeah. Um, there's a sociologist named uh, Dr. Rishon Ray who has done a study of why black people don't exercise in certain types of neighborhoods because of per- perceived um, danger for their person. And um, and it's, <laughs> and, and that's exactly it. That's right. what it is. Like we, we signal, we wave, we smile, we are extra friendly and bubbly. But it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, look at Ahmad Arbery just yeah. running in a neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, as you you're know? telling this story, I can't stop thinking about him and and how you know the, your your story isn't that dissimilar from his. It has a different outcome, obviously, mm-hmm. but the circumstances are related. And yeah. you can't you can't you can't listen to the story you just told without conjuring up what might have gone terribly wrong mm-hmm. because somebody is confused about who you are and what you're doing. And, and it's, why I'm there. Right. Even though it's very clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, your signaling couldn't be more clear. Right. And I'm just picturing you running, like what is threatening about that? And what's going on with that person in the SUV that they're feeling so threatened by mm-hmm. you? Where is that confusion emanating from? Yeah. And what's going on in their life that they would... What 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 is embedded in their programming that perceives that as a threat or something to be scared of? White supremacy is embedded in their programming. Mm-hmm. That's what exactly what that is. I do. Mm-hmm. So if someone's listening to this, and this is like their initiation into thinking about this a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. than they have. Where does that person begin if they can't, you know, be privy to your to my very expensive or, course? Yeah, or like <laughs> like where where do you direct those people? Um, I, I, I think you should be reading. I, th- I think reading is really good. Um, uh, you know, you doing all of the, uh, you know, looking through all the checklists, uh-huh. <laughs> 25 resources for anti-racism. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's important. Around. I think that's, I think it's a very, very uh, important yeah. starting point. But I also think that you should, and it's very, it's difficult now, but you need to broaden your circle. You need to have, you need to be proximate to different kinds of people um, and start embracing their various identities. Um, you know, examine your own, 
examine the way in which you were socialized. Um, and then see other people, see others' identities, uh, embrace them, uh, welcome them into your life. I think that's a that's the way to go. Hmm. Next up is entertainment's ultimate plant-based father-daughter duo, Kevin Smith and his daughter, Harley Quinn Smith, who joined me on episode 530 for a rundown on Kevin's recovery from a heart attack, life in Hollywood, their new podcast, Vegan Abattoir, and many other subjects. Have a taste. Thanks for having, man. When uh, when the kid showed interest in doing a podcast, which like naturally, you know, made my podcaster soul uh -huh. leap. Um, cause she'd been on a few episodes of Smodcast in the past and stuff. But when she was like, I'm thinking about doing a podcast, I was like, what, what? Like, yeah. oh my God, I know a thing or two about <laughs> that. I was so excited. So when she narrowed it down and, and created what, what we're calling vegan abattoir, um, one of the first things I said is like, Ooh, you, you have to have ritual on. Yeah. Cool. And she was like, why? And I was like, because like in the space, he's the guy I'd said, I did this podcast. It's like a year ago. And not a week of my life goes by where I don't run into somebody who's like, oh, I heard you're on Rich Roll's podcast. And it's, it's always somebody I would never expect. Like, it's not like, oh, this is my vegan friend who said that. Mm. It's somebody who like, says this. I'm like, what, you as well? There was a lot of reach in that part. You got oh, a big cool, audience. Man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, that means a lot coming from you. I mean, Harley, do you understand what your dad created? I mean, he is like the original when it comes to, there's like three generations of podcasting here because- your dad, Kevin, was one of the very first, like way, way before anybody was doing it to jump in and own the space. And he really pioneered it and mm -hmm. created like everything that's happened. Uh, a huge debt is owed to you, Kevin. And you personally, so like I was, I wasn't super early into becoming a podcaster, but I was very early in terms of being a fan. Mm -hmm. And your show was one of the very first that I cottoned on to. And um, and it's been super inspirational to me. And so it's cool to be here with, you know, s somebody who goes all the way back to the beginning. Like I'm, I inherited that legacy and it's made me better at what I do. And now to mm -hmm. see you stepping into it, super cool. Thank you. I yeah. mean, he definitely, definitely explained how important he was to the podcasting community <laughs> um, many times to me. Yeah. And um, I actually was going to try to attempt to do a podcast alone. And then one day he came up to the kitchen um, while I was making breakfast and he was like, um, so I have to be a part of it. And yeah. I, I it was, wasn't, no, it wasn't I, quite like I, that. No, it was. He was like, um, <laughs> I'm going to be really insulted. I think, no, you, you actually said, you're going to make a mistake if you don't include me. <laughs> and so I was that like, was close to it. I was like, oh, all right, here we go. But I'm, I mean, I'm <laughs> honored funny. and I'm now very excited that we have this yeah. together. Um, but he did make sure to explain his importance to the <laughs> podcasting community to me um, and give his his own spiel. That's so funny. <laughs> what? And I, look, you know how we were talking about like, oh, your, your father created something. I created something at this table, Rich, that I'm kind of wishing right now. Uh. I'd create it a little differently. What wouldn't call me out in public and tell my secrets. <laughs> when I walk up in the kitchen. I did. I was just like, look, kiddo, I was thinking about it. Like, you could totally do a podcast by yourself, and I applaud that. But, like, it would be such a mistake for us <laughs> not to do yeah. it together. I was like, because, like, I'm a vegan, too, and you flipped me uh -huh. to veganism. Like, your vegan story, like, changed my life. And, and so 
I know the podcasting space. And I was like, and people would love to hear like a dad and daughter talking together and stuff like that. I was like, I'm, I'm not telling you what to do, but like, there's there's a marketing hook here that's so right. You were tempting. threatening me a little bit. <laughs> I wasn't like, if you don't do a podcast with me, you're out of this house. That doesn't mean he's not right, though. <laughs> no, he was right. You know, and I think at, at the time I was like, um, this is rude. <laughs> but um, you know, I then realized how awesome it would be to have it together, but also how cool it is to have the perspective of somebody who's vegan for their health and somebody who's vegan for completely different right. reason for animal rights. So right. it has like also just proved to be a really good combination to for different backstories uh-huh. of why we're vegan. So that's also really cool. But I, I um I was hesitant at yeah. the beginning. <laughs> why? Why are you? Well, I, I want to hear more about that, but <laughs> But my sense is, as somebody who's on the outside looking in and I'm just meeting you now, is one of the incredible kind of beautiful benefits of everything that that has happened to you with the heart attack and going vegan and all of that is what's occurred with your relationship. Like, this has really, like, brought you guys close. Like, it's very sweet, you Thank know? Thank you. That, that, you know, you got involved with the, in this movement because of your daughter mm-hmm. and her insistence. And now you're going to do this podcast. Like there's a, there's just such a, like a bond there, you know, that you guys can do this stuff together. It's really cool. Thank and you. I say that somewhat out of like, I have a 16 year old daughter and I'm in that phase <laughs> right now. Where she wants nothing to do with me, you know? Oh, I, was I was like, I what was would there. it take for my 16 year old daughter to want to do a podcast with me? I was like, you would have to move heaven and earth. Right I'm nearly now. 21. You know? So just give it yeah, like a couple more years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it has been really cool. It's been really special to be able to do it together. And um, I didn't really give my dad a choice at all to be vegan. Um, I just, right. I was insisting upon it. So, but it, I was green rolled. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just like, you're going to go vegan. I was like, all right, all right. Yeah, no, but you gave it, but, but initially, right, you said two months or something like that. Like yeah, the, well, time, that's said, how I yeah. posed it. But I was never really going to let that happen. Uh-huh. But I, I wasn't going to be like, um, please right now commit to a lifetime of veganism because I thought I would scare him. Right. But um, I did just kind of pose it as a few months. But... Um, I mean, it's been like two years. Yeah. Now. I mean, even years. you couldn't have imagined that he would have, he would no. become like this, you know, basically <laughs> you're now, you're now like the new face of veganism, like it or not, Kevin. Like, no, but, she, you know but I mean? she knew in flipping me for, that she would like, he'd be a good get for I, us. I was, I was like, this is important. She's <laughs> like, yeah. He's got a big mouth and he's always talking about uh-huh. his interests and if veganism was one of his interests. That's good for me and my community. Uh-huh. So she kind of saw like the benefit of that, but I, I would like to believe at the heart of it, she was just like, you know, oh my God, I I know a way to keep you alive. Like Mm -hmm. I had almost died clearly because I was ingesting like not just animal food products, but far too many animal food products over the course of a lifetime. So even the nutritionist in the room at at that point was like, you know, a plant-based diet will bring your cholesterol down. And that's where she saw the opening and was like, yes, one of us, one of us. So, you know, I said, look, I eat the way that I ate for 47 years. I'll give this six months. Like, you know, I can, the least I can do is try your way for six months. Why not? Mm. And that was two years ago. Let me see. February, March, April, May, June, July. So almost two two and a half years ago, two two years and five months ago. And I haven't missed anything. That's the question I get the most 
uh, from people um, about veganism. It's just like, what do you miss, bro? What do you miss? Like, uh-huh. well, your daughter's not here. What do you really miss? <laughs> That's so, it's so true. Shady. Well, because they know that you're, like you're the commissar of all this. That like you know, as you said, like he was going vegan for life. So they know like now I have two bosses in life, not just your mother, but also you. Yes, so when you're not around, <laughs> yes, when you're not around, they're like, come on, dude, what do you really think? And I honestly don't miss anything. There's mm-hmm. nothing that I'm like, oh man. That's the thing that people are surprised about because they they suspect that you're just walking around craving in and out. Like, yeah, like long. your whole life, yeah. you're like, I'm living a half or a quarter life where I can't enjoy food anymore. Like we live in California and so they've got this veganism stuff down to a science. It's dialed like, in. Really tasty. But even without that, like even if you're just like, look, I can't go to some high-end restaurant where they take a kumquat and turn it into a meatball. So what do I do? <laughs> Beans and rice, man, like yeah. tastier than most stuff that I ate on the non-vegan side. Yeah. And, and like, that's seriously my go-to. Like for the last month, that's all I've been kind of well, going last hard time, on. I, the last time I saw rice. you was at the the Mercy for Animals gala thing. And you, mm-hmm. you got mm-hmm. up to the podium to give away like the hero award or something. I can't remember what exactly the award was that you gave away, but you said something along the lines of, if somebody had told me if I went vegan, I could, I'd be sitting next to the Joker. Yeah. <laughs> I would have done this a long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. I don't know if, don't know if he liked it. Joaquin yeah. kind of was like, oh, don't, don't, don't tell them I'm the Joker. Uh-huh. As if they didn't know. Right. As if everyone in the room wasn't secret. like, the Joker's here. <laughs> but yeah, the benefits that come with it, you know, of course, uh, the health benefits are, uh, number one for me have been obvious. Like I dropped a bunch of weight. I'm like, uh, in my uh, behind the scenes life or the, what's not so obvious is like my body chemistry. And I find that out when I go to the doctor all the time. And Dr. Leidenheim's the guy that saved my life, my, my cardiologist. Every time I've gone for the last, you know, you do six month interval mm-hmm. checkups. He's always like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And the first time it registered was mm-hmm. like when I went vegan for two, I was vegan for two months and I went in for like a blood test and he was just like, Oh my God, everything is great except for your cholesterol and i was like well we knew that that's why i had a heart attack he goes no your cholesterol is in the toilet like mm. what happened he's like it dropped out and i was like i went vegan he's going well i gotta cut your cut the meds the meds yeah. in half because whatever you're doing is really doing the job and so i've gone back you know every six months for another checkup and the last one i had was right when i got back from the tour so it was like at the beginning of march right before everything went into lockdown and he was just like, your blood work is phenomenal. Like, you know, he's like, I, and he even said, because yeah. Harley always picks at him. Because early on, I was like, I'm going to go vegan. And Dr. Leidenheim was like, you don't have to go vegan. There's nothing wrong with me. Which is astounding to me. He goes, just oh. keep it in moderation. You know, he's like, there's nothing wrong with me. So he later, you know, was like, look, fuck me. Like, going vegan was the right move for you. Like, I can clearly tell. So he has since, like, tell your daughter she was right. Yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Thanks for the ride, folks. It was a good one. Cheers to what's ahead. Let's make it the best year ever together, right? Links to all the full episodes and the social media accounts for all the guests excerpted today can of course be found in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to simply subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page 
at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Ali Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And of course, our theme music was, as always, created many, many years ago by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Until then, peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.